0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. If you guys can stand, and I'm going to read the passage for the day. This is something that we've been doing as a church, and it's a way of acknowledging uh, that God's words are weightier than our words. Um, and these words will be the most important thing said today, and also just acknowledging to the Lord that we're thankful that he's given us his word. So this is Mark chapter 15. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear That he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked the centurion whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Uh, And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Okay, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. So today is, today on the calendar is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day when Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem on a cult and the people are worshiping him really and, and, and waving palms at him. And then we enter into the week before Jesus goes to the cross. In this series, Palm Sunday happened like five or six weeks ago. We never talk about Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday because I always want to talk about the cross on Palm Sunday so that on Easter Sunday uh, we can talk about an empty tomb. So that's why we're not talking about Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter Sunday. We are having a joint service with Chosen Generation across the parking lot on um, Friday night, you want to sign up for that soon. There's over 100 people signed up for it now. Uh, that's going to be awesome. And um, so we'd love for you to join join us for that. And then Sunday morning is Easter Sunday. We're going to do services at 10. We're going to have one service. We're going to pack it out. It's going to be, we're going to have an Easter tailgate at 930. And so we're going to have like continental breakfast type stuff. And we'd love for you to come early um, and reconnect with some folks. This time of Easter Sunday is when everybody comes. Um, we've been getting in touch with people that haven't been here since COVID started, but I think they just got out of the habit of going to church, and I'm encouraging them this is the time to get back in the habit uh, is Easter Sunday. If you have folks um, in your life where you know God's at work doing something, it's a great week to invite people. If you tune in online but you haven't been here for a while, we would love to see you here on Easter Sunday. So that is next week, uh, but this week is a more somber Week. So I'm going to read another passage and set the mood a little bit. This is John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This scene is such a a visceral, um, sensory, physical, emotional scene. Jesus is nailed to a cross. And that is something that we talk about so much and we say so often that it becomes like um, if you've ever just said a word over and over and over again until you forget what the word means, you know what I'm talking about? Like, that's what happens because we say it so much that it doesn't mean anything. If your spouse came home and said, hey, you remember my Uncle Bob? Well, he was nailed to a cross the other day. You'd be like, wait, what? Who nailed Bob to a cross? Like, it would be insane. But we can say Jesus was nailed to a cross. And right, yeah, Jesus was nailed to a cross. But Jesus was nailed to To a cross. Uh, Jesus, the most, whether you believe he was divine or rose from the dead, historians will say he was the most influential personality in the history of the world. Again, whether you believe he was divine or rose from the grave, people don't, there aren't scandalous accounts of Jesus' life. Like people, Um, agree he led this exemplary life he was a good guy and a great teacher even if you don't believe that he was divine which it's contradicted by the fact that his death happened on a cross good guys didn't get nailed to crosses radicals got nailed to crosses and he was a radical claiming that he was the son of god and and introducing a kingdom that ran contrary to the kingdom of this world and that's why he was killed he was, in fact, nailed to a cross. Historians don't dispute—serious historians don't dispute—that Jesus was an actual personality that walked the earth, nor that he was killed by the Romans. All the information we have says that Rome um, made the decision to put Jesus on a cross. He was nailed, like big, honkin' nails. Um, I was watching a show on Netflix called The Last Kingdom recently. It's my folding the laundry show. And, uh, and, and it's about Vikings and stuff, which is cool. But they were brutal people. And they, at one point, nail a guy to a cross. And just the, just the visceral scene, you know. I don't like getting a shot. I don't like giving blood because they put that big... I don't like the little pinprick thing that they do to check. You know what I'm talking about? I hate that thing because you know it's coming. Just imagine them sticking that on your wrist with a sledgehammer. Uh, He's elevated for everyone to see. And so the final hours are him, you know, standing there with people staring at him and watching him die. Uh, There's a point to crucifixion. Romans perfected execution with crucifixion. Um, It involves pain. It wasn't a firing squad where, um, you know, that's it and you're gone. It wasn't a guillotine. It wasn't off with their head. It's not lethal injection. It's let's let's kill this guy, but let's take our time. Let's kill him, but let's torture him too. Uh, It's agonizing. Um, you don't die because, because you're bleeding, you know, from your hands or your wrists or your feet. You die because gravity eventually kills you, because the weight, your weight pulls you apart. Because in order to breathe, you need to, like, pull yourself up to get a breath out, and then you sink down. And just, just imagine the pain, every t- the pain you're in constantly, but then you move in an even more pain. And eventually you die by suffocation. Um, It involves shame. You're hanging naked and there is a crowd staring at you, taunting you, throwing stuff at you. It's a symbol of the power of the empire and a warning not to mess with Rome. And bodies would hang on those crosses uh, for days. It could take people days to die and they could leave the bodies up there and they'd be picked at by birds and taken down and thrown into mass graves and eaten by dogs. We can't fathom how brutal this is. His body was a wreck because he had been tortured for hours before they put him on the cross. The other gospel accounts when you read them incomplete like he's on the cross and darkness falls over the land for 3 hours. It's a disorienting environment. Matthew says that between the sour wine And him dying, he cries out with a loud voice, but the only words that we have during that time are, it is finished. So, in this, well, like I've seen a few people pass away and it's been cancer. And cancer at the end often gets you by pneumonia. And so people at the end just can't breathe. And some of you, and I'm, I'm, I'm apologetic for bringing this up because it brings back a memory, but the whole thing is about trauma. Um, when someone is at the end and they're struggling to breathe, they can breathe and not breathe for like a minute and then breathe and you're wondering whether or not they die. Jesus is in that state. That's where people are in the cross. Like, is he going to get back another? But then Matthew tells us he musters it up at the end. Like he's almost dead and then somehow he gets up and cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. And pfft. And he's gone. The curtain in the temple at that moment is torn from the top to the bottom. So the curtain in the temple separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim was where the presence of God manifested itself. And so they couldn't go in there. And once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, but only after all of these ceremonies, cleansing him from the sins of Israel, cleansing Israel from their sins, but the whole high priest from his sins. And so then, because then he'd be clean, he could go in. But even then, they tied a rope around his ankle and put a bell on it. So in case he wasn't clean and God killed him in God's presence, they could drag the body out. And it's a whole way of God saying, you can come to my presence, but only on my terms. And my terms involve your sin being dealt with. And That's it. And we didn't tear the the curtain from the bottom to the top and say, God, let us in there. That's not it. God ripped it from the top to the bottom to say, now that Christ has died, the terms have been satisfied and you are clean and you can come into my presence, not because of what you have done for me, but because of what I have done for you. That is the gospel. It's not God receiving our good works or our good life or whatever it is, but us receiving The good life and work of Christ on our behalf, which is the only thing that's enough to make us right with God. In this moment, the tombs opened and the dead came out. Maybe the most confusing part about the Gospels, the centurion who's been at the foot of the cross cried out, surely. He takes everything in and says, surely this was the Son of God. This centurion who's seen hundreds, if not thousands of crucifixions says, I have never seen anything like this before. They come to break his legs and to fulfill the prophecy that he's not, his, none of his bones are broken. But somebody comes up and just think about someone doing this to a loved one of yours, takes a spear, jams it into his side and blood and water pours out, which we know now medically, that's what happens to the, to the blood in your heart. It separates into its component parts after you die. And so it signified that he was dead. And when evening had come, since it's the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, because they can't do any of this work on the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. All four gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea. It's significant. No one knows where Arimathea is, not significant. Everyone knows what the council is really significant. It's the Sanhedrin. Um, It's like being a member of Congress in the United States. There were 70 men in the Sanhedrin, and they ruled Jerusalem. They were the cultural elite of Israel. Uh, Matthew, in talking about him, says he was rich. Uh, A couple of the disciples mentioned that he was respected I'm sure, just like Congress, there are a lot of folks in Congress that are not respected. <laughs> They're not, you don't think well of them, but there are some that are universally respected. He was looking for the kingdom of God. There's something genuine in his pursuit of the Lord. Uh, John tells us he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And man, what a statement. That tells us a lot about Joseph. Um. You know, you don't know if he ever personally interacted with Jesus. He didn't follow him like the other disciples, but he was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, I don't know, in some spheres of your life, you probably relate to being a a secret disciple for fear of what people are going to think about you. It It doesn't often feel like a great time to be a Christian. It may be you don't want your high school classmates to know how much you love Jesus or your college professor to know that or your co-workers. Uh, You may worry about the conversation that comes next, the isolation you might experience about what people might presume on you, you know, based on that information. And that's where Joseph is. Luke says he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and their action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So he knew what was going on but he didn't consent to it. He he saw all this tension brewing over months and over years and boiling over in the previous weeks and days, and he, he, he had not consented to it. But it also doesn't say he banged his fist on the table and said, over my dead body. He didn't stand up and do anything to prevent it. And so if you're Joseph, And you're in this scene and you're staring at the dead body of Jesus on a cross. What do you feel right now? I would feel shame. I'd feel regret. Um, You let him get crucified when it seems like there's something more that you could and should have done. I'd feel sadness because you're a disciple of Jesus and now he's gone. I'd feel anger. Because these knuckleheads on the council actually did this. I feel confusion because you don't know what happens next. Maybe you thought, they'll never go through with this. They're all talk. And then the the mob just gets out of hand. And now it's over. And so this scene, when evening had come, the day before the Sabbath, it says, he took courage. He took courage. And went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I heard someone say recently that courage isn't the absence of fear. It's finding the will to act in spite of your fear. Everyone's scared, right? It's finding the will to act in spite of the fear that's in front of you. And he does that. And what what strikes me most probably about this passage is that Joseph at this point has nothing to gain from his actions. Uh, if he steps forward a few hours earlier, maybe he saves Jesus. Now, nothing. Jesus says it is finished, and his disciples believe him. Like, they're not anticipating a resurrection. Even if they should have been, they're not. Uh, He's dead. This next paragraph in the passage, the more I read it, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. I think Mark is trying to get a point across. <laughs> He's dead. Um, there is a theory out there about Jesus. It's called the swoon theory, that he wasn't dead. He was only mostly dead. This is a few people got the movie reference. There you go. Um, and then a few days later, try this again he felt better yeah wanted to go for a walk and and but he but he was dead in the scene nicodemus also on the council brings 75 pounds of spices to anoint the body i didn't realize this i read this week that that is to mask the smell of decomposition and so they would put the body in a tomb with these spices mask the smell of decomposition wait for the body to decompose, take the bones, put them in an ossuary, a bone box, and then relocate them and use the tomb for somebody else. 75 pounds of spices is, I can't, it's an unfathomable amount of spices, you know? And they, he's not coming back. He's dead. I think Joseph feels like he has to do something for him. And this is what he can do. But he cashes in some chips when he does this and go into pilot. I thought, man, there aren't, maybe five guys on the face of the planet in this moment that can play this part, that would have the sway to go to Pilate with any hope, that would have a a tomb at the ready to put Jesus' body in it. It is a critical moment, and it doesn't look like it, you know, but in hindsight, it really is. And so we bought a linen shroud Took Jesus' body down, wrapped him in the shroud, laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb, and the Marys were there to see it. He has nothing to gain. He can only lose. The disciples have scattered. The council is satisfied. The Romans just want to be done with it. The Marys will appreciate what he's done, but he has nothing to gain from the Marys because the Marys didn't count in that culture. Uh, they couldn't testify in court. In God's kingdom, they count because the Marys are the only ones that see the death and the burial and the resurrection. (laughs) God thinks highly of them. But Joseph wouldn't get anything out of that. Um, I thought about the scenes we get from like death row, whether it be through the movies or through news accounts, and who's there with someone in their last moments, and it's family to have to be there. And it's, it's religious people like me who are called to be there, but also kind of have to be there. You know what I mean? Um, and that's a lonely place. I had a neighbor a few years ago who did some bad things, and I ended up going to see him in jail a bunch of times. And it, and it was fine. I enjoyed ministering to him. But it, you did kind of wonder if people thought that by going to jail to visit him, I was, I was saying I was okay with the things that he did. You worry about some guilt by association. And Joseph had that to lose. I thought about, you know, in in our cancel culture today, um, if you remember the name Justine Sacco, she was the woman a few years ago that was flying to Africa, and she put it over on Twitter when she got onto the plan, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. That's what she tweeted out. And by the time she landed in South Africa, her life was over. Like, there was a horrible thing to put out there, but I'm not sure the punishment fit the crime. Lost her job, became a pariah, and there was guilt by association if you um, defended her. The Central Park bird-watching, dog-walking thing a couple years ago, you know, Amy Cooper, you know that name? Man, read about that, because there's two sides to that story, but even now, as I say, there's two sides to that story. I wonder if they're going to think, oh, he's okay with what Amy Cooper did, which I'm just... Like, he has a lot to lose in this situation and, and nothing to gain. And I thought, what would, what would we do for Jesus if Jesus could do nothing for us? Like, we have a lot to gain by our association from Jesus because we know in hindsight what it meant that the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom and that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Joseph had nothing to gain, and yet he still performed this act of worship. Um, the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is referred to as Holy Saturday, but not talked about much. And it's this whole concept of what they did on that day and how they felt in this limited window of what did, what did the life of Jesus mean in the absence of the resurrection. One person wrote, For us, it's only as we experience Holy Saturday that we can ask whether we would follow Christ regardless of heaven or hell, regardless of pain or pleasure, whether we would follow in the midst of the uncertainty that Holy Saturday brings into our lives. It's only here that we can ask if we've truly offered ourselves to God for no reason other than the desire to offer ourselves as a gift. Faith does not die here. Rather, it's forged here. He's doing this for Jesus simply because he loves Jesus. And I don't think we really even have this opportunity because we live in light of the resurrection Of Jesus. We know that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us, that that demonstrated that Jesus has power over sin and over its consequence, which is death, and we have access to that. But what would we do for him if we didn't know that, if if he could do nothing for us? Would we worship Jesus simply because Jesus is worthy of our worship? And it leans into the question, Do we, in what ways do we take the grace of God for granted? Because surely we do. I thought about this more, and I thought, in, in some microcosms of our life, we're all living on Holy Saturday. Like, we know the end of the story. We know how it turns out ultimately, but there are situations in our lives that we don't know how they're going to turn out tomorrow or the next week or next year. And we're just not sure about them. Situations where we know Christ is Lord, um, and He is going to work things out, but we don't know if He's going to work things out the way we think He ought to work things out, and how hard it's going to be if He doesn't work things out the way we want Him to work things out. And it's a bit harder in those times. It's harder to follow, to worship when things aren't going your way, especially over a prolonged period of time. Some of you this morning are singing through gritted teeth. Uh, You identify with Job and the psalmists and their suffering more than you want to. One person wrote, even when life feels uncertain, when we do not have the well-packaged conclusions that we lust and obsess over, there's still so much of grace to taste and to see. Holy Saturday reminds us that amidst the chaos and transitions of life, there's no such thing as just another day resurrection might be a day away something miraculous might be right around the corner even in the imperfections of life in the waiting room of faith holy saturday can take us deeper if we let it helping us to open our eyes and see that hope even when the victory is uncertain is already here i imagine that many of us are experiencing some form of a holy saturday right now and joseph is a picture of what it's like to worship in spite of your uncertainty about what next what's next and a model of worshiping well um, because you love Jesus, uh, even when Jesus isn't giving you the thing that you think he ought to or that you want. That's one thing I take out of this. Here's a second. You can't do everything for Jesus, but you can do something. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And surely Joseph thought what he was doing for Jesus was like the very least he could do. Surely he's acting out of a measure of Regret. And I think, again, all of us, or most of us on some level, uh, are doing that and have regret over the things that we could have done, but we didn't, and what we're doing now. There's a pastor that, that I heard talk on this probably 10 years ago and, um, and looked up some thoughts that came out of this from him. He said, I once thought that discipleship was something for super saints. I thought that when you made a disciple, you made a leader. And so I pressed for everyone to be the, become the equivalent of a spiritual Navy SEAL. That worked out great for those who were cut from the cloth of leadership. High drive, type A personalities. They loved it, but it also left a lot of our sheep beat up and bleeding. Those with quiet personalities, lower drive, or some may call it contentment, <laughs> and background gifts were left to feel inadequate and worthless. I had no plan for them, and worse, I had become an accidental Pharisee harshly judging everyone who is behind me in the following Jesus line. I wish I'd known that a disciple is simply a follower. It includes everyone in the following Jesus line. Some are at the front, some are in the middle, some bring up the rear. Which honestly, as I read that a few times, I thought, I think he still has that wrong. It's not a line. It's a body. And everybody has a part to play, you know? He says, but by definition, we are all disciples. The Greek word means follower, learner, pupil. It's not for star students only. The result was a lot more grace and a lot more patience and a lot less Pharisee. Uh, you can't do everything. You got to do something. Um, I'm going to, are those, Daniel, are those circles, I forgot to check the slides and see if that's, what's the next line? There we go. This is, um, I think the text isn't supposed to be on there. That's okay. This is just a way of, of, it came out of a book years ago by Rick Warren um, about church leadership, but just a helpful way to think about things and how we think about them as a church. So this four circles, a core committed congregation and crowd. And so the crowd, and you may be in the crowd where you are just checking out Jesus. You're not, you're not sure about him. That's an appropriate thing to do before you, you wade knee deep into a church is like, who is he really? And it, your commitment is not to the church. First, it's to Christ, and Christ calls you into His body, which is the church. And so, you, that could be you. You could be, you know, new in town. And so you're in the crowd and trying to figure out if this is where God wants you to be. It could be that you haven't been engaged in the church for a long time, and so we're trying to figure that out. You can stay there, but not for long. The congregation is where you start stepping in, and and you probably one of a few things happen. You become relationally engaged. You're not just going and out, but you're really starting to get to know people. You're going out to lunch. You're going out to dinner. Maybe you checked out a home group a time or two, and you're letting people in, and you're letting yourself get in because so much of body life is care for each other. But you can't care for each other if you don't really know what's going on in each other's lives. And maybe that, maybe that you start serving on an occasional basis because you know that there are needs that need to be met. Maybe that you're giving financially. And financial giving is not between you and the church. It's between you and the Lord. But throughout the whole Bible, he calls his people to give of the first fruits to him, and it is one of the most tangible ways of surrendering control to him. I think that's why he asks it, but the church is a vehicle for that. And so what are those three things? When you're in that committed circle, and that's the circle really that you ought to be in, you're relationally connected on a consistent basis. You're serving because you're a part of the body. And so if you recognized what your gifting is and how God wants to use that for this season, and so you, on a consistent basis, are serving the other members of the body using your gifting. A lot of times that happens through the ministry of the church. And, and you've made a commitment to, 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 like, give of your first fruits to the work of the Lord. And then there's the core. And the core is where people are leading in ministry. The core is—this whole thing is a little bit like gravity, you know, pulls you in. And the core is where people are, like, side by side— and it's, there's an intensity and a heat to the core. And over time, I wish I knew this at the beginning, you just can't be in there for too long because if you are, you burn out. And we have burned out leaders over the years because we've kept them in there for too long. Our elders now serve for a minimum of three years, but a maximum of five years because it's hot in there and they need to step back out. And people need permission to step back out and just like, you know, be a church member. Um, but if you've been around for a while, you should take your turn in the core, because um, God will use your gifts in that way. And, and it's different when you're me and you get paid to do this because I don't have a job outside of this that's taking my time because then it makes it even harder to be in the core. That's how we think of things. Joseph was probably somewhere out in the crowd congregation rings knowing he should have been doing more and took a giant step in because he thought, man, I have totally blown this, <laughs> you know? And all of us, to some extent, you can always think that I should have done more. I could be doing more for Christ. And, and you can't do everything. But man, forget about the past. Don't worry about the future. Just take the step and do it now. And the something that you can be doing is critical to the work of the kingdom. For us right now, coming out of COVID, the last two months have been so much fun to see faces back on a regular basis. But it just ends up where we have, we have more needs in the children's ministry And that's a huge deal. We have needs with our student ministry and just consistently ministering to our students. Um, We need folks on our guest services ministry because that's so important. If you have musical talent and you've been holding out on us, we didn't know Kevin Carrada played the drums until about six months ago. He's like, yeah, I play a little drums. And that's just been a huge thing. And we know there's more of you out there that are hiding, and we need you. And it's a great time to jump into that ministry because it's just being reshaped a bit. And the culture is being reshaped, and it's a great time to step in. So please let us know about this. And this is the last thing I want to say about Joseph coming off of that. You can, never, you can never imagine how God will use the things that you offer him. You can never imagine how he's going to use them, regardless of what you think about them. I can't say that without Joseph, the resurrection doesn't happen, because God can resurrect a body in a million different ways, I guess. But it doesn't happen the same way. There's not a tomb uh, on Sunday morning with the stone rolled away and angels on top of the stone and linen cloths laying just so inside um, for Peter and John to discover. I wonder if Joseph, weeks or months or even years later, put two and two together and how critical his role was to the resurrection happening the way that it did and thought, like in that moment, like, oh, oh. I guess I'm glad I did that. You know, like, I'm glad I found some courage in that moment and went to Pilate. He could have walked away in that moment of decision. He doesn't think he's setting up the resurrection of Jesus. What he's doing in that moment is just loving Jesus. And I guarantee he doesn't feel like he's done much, that he thinks it's the least I could do given what I could have done but didn't do to prevent his death. And he doesn't think it's much, but God does think it's much. And so all you have to do is love Jesus today. Forget the past, forget the future, today. Um, There are days I think, man, we should be further along as a church. There's been so many just hiccups over the years, I tend to think most of them are my fault. It's part of the reason I'm going on sabbatical. I haven't done enough. And then there are days when God brings to mind different individuals and families over the years that he's used the ministry of this church to change individual lives, but lives of families and generations of families. And I do think, well, we're like, what would have happened if we hadn't stepped out and started this church 15 years ago, and God's got tons of great churches he could use, but he didn't use those churches, he used this one. And man, that's a thought. Um, our, Our children's ministers, I pray this many Sunday mornings, that I pray specifically that this will be a day that a couple kids back there, and they're back there every week, but this will be a morning that they never forget, that something will break through this morning, and they'll remember it forever. And I just, I have this picture of God in heaven, like if you're a children's ministry worker calling you in to a room and you being like, man, I hope I'm not in trouble. I know you can get in trouble in heaven at that point. I think it's gone. You know what I mean? But like, and say, no, I want you to see this. And he rolls the tape back and he says, yeah, you remember that day in like September of 2021 where you were part of this children's ministry class in this church? And you're like, I don't remember that at all. He's like, it's okay. You remember this kid? It's like, oh, that kid kind of annoyed me. I do kind of remember them. And he's like, well, let me show you what was going on that morning. And he says, while you were yelling at the rest of the kids to be quiet, (laughs) this kid was getting it. And this is what was going on in their heart, in their mind, in their soul. And this is the seed that had been planted that that morning just started to grow. And this is what happened in that kid's life over years. And I got four kids That this is the only children's ministry they've ever known and um, spiritually they're doing well and it's because of the work of many many children's ministers over many many years and student ministers that have loved them in the name of jesus and taught them the gospel and you can't do everything but you can do something, and you have no idea how God is going to use the thing that you do. I tell guest services people all this. I tell you guys this all the time. Church is the scariest place to go to if you haven't been to church in a while. You are not a scary people. You don't think you are, but you are to someone who's new, and every week someone might walk up to that door that hasn't been to church in 25 years or ever, and their grandma or their mom has been praying for them for 20 years, and this is their re-engagement with it. And you are the first person that they interact with. And you don't think that, but it is huge. And you have no idea how God is going to use that. You have no idea how God is going to use not just a conversation, but an act of selflessness with a coworker, um, a conversation, a prayer with a child, Uh, grace shown towards your spouse you can't do everything but you can do something you have no idea how God is going to use it and God has an infinite amount he has infinitely more grace for us than we do for ourselves or we do for each other in this scene was it a sin for Joseph not to bang on the table and keep them to stop this injustice from happening and I think it probably was And so that means Jesus died on a cross for Joseph in part because Joseph didn't do more to keep Jesus from dying on a cross. And I just can't get my mind around that. Except the grace of God. And we put so much weight on ourselves to do everything just right. For a Jesus who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wherever you are with him, if this is the first time you've really heard this, or if you've heard it a million times, on the cross, Jesus took your guilt and took your shame so that you don't have to carry it around with you. Uh, he rose from the dead to show you uh, the death and sin. Their power is limited, and he has overcome it. And he's called you to pick up your cross daily and follow him, to take that yoke upon you daily, to love him daily, and that his mercies for you are new every morning. So when it looks like all is lost, love Jesus. When it lo- think, you think, I've totally blown this, That's why there's a cross in the middle of the story. Love Jesus. And know you love him because he loved you first, and that love will never run out. Uh, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a minute, and, and just in the next few minutes, we have these connect cards before you. They have space for prayer requests and for praises. And we're just going to give you a minute or two to spend some time talking to the Lord about whatever it is that he's talking to you about. We'd love for you to share some prayer requests with us um, or some praises. And I've been praying for those throughout the week as we receive them. Um, Or if there's just some things the Lord's talking to you about that you need to write down and take home and spend time with him later, write on that thing and put it in your pocket. Uh, but hear what he's saying to you. And in a minute, uh, when the band starts playing, we're going to offer communion up at the front. Um, Dan and Becky are going to be up here this week. And um, if you have received uh, the work that Christ has done on your behalf, we would invite you to come up here. He says, do this in remembrance of me because we're so quick in our souls to forget the gospel. Our need for it. And just the greatness of it. And so they will offer you the bread and the cup as you come up here. Father, thank you for Joseph of Arimathea. Somebody who in the story seems like an afterthought. But is recorded by all four gospels. And in hindsight plays such a huge part in the narrative of the resurrection, Lord. And is a picture of what it looks like to love you. Even when we're not sure about what it is that you're doing, Lord, just because you are worthy of our love and our worship and our praise, God. Would you take that story and change our hearts? And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.